and thanks to everyone who volunteered yesterday. I know we've already said it, but um, it was uh, just a really special day and tangible evidence of how God's working in our church and in our community. Uh, at this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss for Antioch Kids, um, so you can be dismissed to your classes with your um, teachers. We, uh, we say to you as a collective body, uh, servants of Antioch Kids, you are sent. Uh, Church, my name is Tanner. I'm one of the pastoral candidates here at Antioch. And uh, if you've been around Antioch for a little bit, we have a a saying that we use to maybe describe our unique approach to ministry. Um, We like to say that we are unimpressive, but authentic. And if you're hearing that for the first time, You might be like me when I heard it for the first time, and I was like, is that something we should really be saying out loud? Like, do we need to broadcast our mistakes? Uh, Shouldn't we be aiming for impressiveness? Like, when people think about us, shouldn't they think, man, those people really got it together. They're a church in the South End that's putting together fall festivals. Impressive. Or maybe you're like me and you think, isn't embracing unimpressiveness just a, an excuse for getting it wrong or under-delivering? Shouldn't we be trying to, you know, pro- over, like promise and execute on those promises? And, and that might be a temptation, right? We might view unimpressive but authentic as a, as a tempting way of kind of getting by with what we can do and not putting a lot of effort in. Whatever it is, my goal this morning is not to defend whatever we think we're saying when we call ourselves unimpressive but authentic, but to put forward what the Bible teaches as a ministry that's defined as unimpressive but authentic in hopes that that would be our approach as well. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We'll be in verses 7 through 18. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you, that is on page 965. Our sermon title this morning, I ran out of creative energy. It's unimpressive, but authentic. And our main point this morning is, in Christ, we are free to embrace the unimpressive life and enjoy an authentic relationship with God. And if you don't have that yet, we're just going to go further and break it down in two ways. The unimpressive life verses 7 through 11, and an authentic relationship with God, verses 12 through 18. With that said, if you are physically able, we invite you to stand in honor for the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, we ask you that you would take a posture uh, of reverence in your heart. Again, today's passage is 2 Corinthians 3, verses 7 through 18. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses's face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, and not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. 
but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And now the Spirit, the Lord is spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. Well, in 1990, the blues rock band, the Black Crows, released their debut studio album. We got any Black Crows fans? This might land very badly. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to say the name of the album because, you know, it's Sunday morning. And uh, you probably know it if you know it. But if not, I'm going to tell a story from this album. So I was like 10 years old, 15 years later. Uh, I found my dad's copy of this album and would stick it in my portable CD player on the way to school. Kids in the room. We used to not have music on our phone. We had like physical CDs. They went in CD players. The headphones pinched your hair on the sides of your ears. And if you hit bumps, it skipped. Okay. Uh, I tell that to, to both make me sound young and old. So uh, anyway, there's a, there's a track on this album. It's very famous, probably one of the most famous songs entitled She Talks to Angels. It's a horribly sad, semi-biographical song about a young woman who is typical of, my, uh, might be typical of who you'd find in these 90s rock scenes. She is described as... Um, someone who outwardly looks the part. She, she paints her eyes as black as night, the, the line says. But she also is walled off. She pulls the shades down. She guards herself. She's not really, even though she looks part of the scene, she's not really living in that scene. She tells an inauthentic narrative about the fact that she's an orphan, even though the reality is she has a family. Finally, she gets so wrapped up in the pursuit of pleasure that she goes through painful means, including heroin addiction, to achieve that pleasure. And the song builds at a crescendo in the chorus that says, she says she talks to angels and says that they know her name, says they call her out by her name. And as I thought about the song this week, I've listened to that album like three or four times already. As I thought about that song this week, I thought about how none of us would call that an impressive life. It's, it's incredibly sad. We have the benefit of knowing the story, though. We have the benefit of being on the outside looking in. But what the artist has done is put together a picture of a person who's trying to be impressive, trying to fit the image of the scene, but using an inauthentic means of fitting that image. And the reality is that 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 person, she, cannot be impressive through inauthentic means. It can't be done, and it's killing her. She wants to look the part and have the story and feel the feelings and talk to angels. 
But the truth is the inauthentic path of hiding and lying and hurting herself are leading her farther and farther away from the reality that she's truly looking for. The reality is that in the particular way in which she's chosen to pursue life and freedom are the very things that are killing her and holding her in bondage. And while you might not resonate with the story of a woman struggling with addiction, let me bring it a little closer to home. The desire to look impressive, to climb the ranks, to have the status, is a drug that will kill you. Because often in this world, what is most impressive is what is most unlike us. And in order for us to make the mark, to climb the ranks, to have the status, we have to become something other than ourselves. We have to be inauthentic. And so if we want to live the life that God has called us to in Christ, we have to do something that is different, something that is unimpressive. This is what Paul's getting at in this passage this morning um, when he writes to the Corinthians. So briefly, because we haven't like been in 2 Corinthians, so I've got to bring you up to speed a little bit. So Paul establishes a church in Corinth, leaves, does his thing, gets a report back. It's not going well. It's a lot of sin in the church, a lot of division. They're, they're inward fighting. So he writes a letter, 1 Corinthians. Tells them, hey, you got to fix some stuff. It's a pretty harsh letter, right? Here's what you need to do to kind of address some of the sin issues. By the way, I'm coming to visit. He visits. Doesn't go well, right? Bad visit, okay? Uh, it's, it's called the painful visit for a reason. And he leaves. And the Corinthian Christians are like, that dude, that's the guy? That's the guy who's supposed to be like our leader? No, surely not. He's weak. He kind of mumbles around a little bit. He's not the strongest leader. He's also a little mean at times. So then it, again, doesn't go well. He writes a second letter. We don't have this letter. Probably, thank goodness, called the severe letter, right? The severe letter works. They get, they kind of get it together. They get their, they get back into the rhythm of things, start pursuing righteousness, holiness, and they come to their senses and say, hey, we were a little harsh to Paul. We need to make it right with him. We want to be reconciled together. We want to apologize. And so Paul, at the beginning of what we now have is 2 Corinthians, is writing a lot of things about reconciliation and comfort and forgiveness, and he's trying to get this relationship back where it needs to be. But there's another issue in Corinth. The Corinthian Christians have fallen into the trap of wanting to be impressed and wanting to impress others, which has given rise to some leaders in the church that are causing some issues. That Paul, one of his goals in 2 Corinthians is to address some of these leaders. Paul describes these leaders in the following ways. They are peddlers of God's word. Men of insincerity. Those who trust in credentials. Those who trust in their own sufficiency. Those who embrace deceitful and underhanded ways. Those who preach another Jesus and a different gospel. Servants of Satan. So these 
impressive leaders are apparently false leaders, servants of Satan. They have the appearance of impressiveness, but they're inauthentic. They look the part, they sound intelligent, they have the right credentials, and people follow them. But we know, and as Paul points out, they are insincere, deceitful, and inauthentic. Worse than this, they claim to share in the same glorious ministry as Moses, which brings us to our passage this morning. Paul is going to compare the authentic Christian life with the life of Moses, using, using Moses' most impressive, shining example, the delivery of the law in Exodus 34, 29 through 35. So let's look at our first point. In Christ, we can embrace the unimpressive life. Look at verses 7 and 8. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? If you're like me, you love a good artifact. If you work in an office, you know that your coworkers and you probably love a good artifact. As a culture, we like hanging our accomplishments on the walls. We like wearing them on our persons as a symbol of what we've done or accomplished. I, have, I carry with me, for whatever reason, in my backpack, my conference championship ring from college. I don't know why, in case anyone just asked me, right? To like, can you prove that you were a champion? Yeah, I can, actually, as a matter of fact. Here's my ring. We love a trophy, We like earning statuses. We like doing the workshops on LinkedIn and updating our badges. And so the Corinthian Christians, like the rest of humanity, love a good achievement. And they've fallen into the trap and are lost in a a desire for impressiveness that's anchored in tangible senses of accomplishment. Which is why in the verses that immediately come before our passage this morning, the Corinthian Christians are asking Paul, can you send us a letter of recommendation for you? Like, it's not enough that you planted this church, but who can vouch for you? Why should we even listen to you? And just as we often do, Corinthians have mistaken impressiveness of letters as a sign for an authentic ministry. And this assumption cannot be farther from reality. So Paul turns to Moses as an example and describes Moses' ministry, as impressive as it was, as a ministry of death. If you want an artifact, if you want impressiveness, what is more impressive than Mount Sinai? What is more impressive than clouds of thunder and lightning and the finger of God writing on stone tablets and the shining face of a man who has sat in his presence. What is more impressive than that? We would all might be tempted to say, yeah, I want that ministry. But Paul is saying that that ministry is a ministry of death. The letters carved in stone is in reference to the Old Covenant, summarized and identified generally as the Ten Commandments. It was a ministry that leads only to death. Why? Because the law demands that we live perfectly obedient lives in order to experience life and righteousness and happiness with God. 
And since none of us are able to do this, our only option is to fake it till we make it, to hang our achievements up on the wall, which only serves to kill, kill us more and more because the pursuit of, un, of impressiveness continually drives us farther away from ourselves. We can only point to the things we've done, which are no, nothing. So if you want impressive, then the law is impressive, but it will kill you. So Paul continues, if this ministry of death is so glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry of the Spirit? But what are the artifacts of the Spirit? Where is there a certificate? Like when you become a Christian, do you get your achievement to put on the wall? Do you get a tablet of stone? Do you get thunder and lightning? Does the earth shake when you turn to Christ and believe? No. The ministry of the Spirit comes with none of these things. It's seemingly unimpressive. But what we get is far more glorious than anything we could possibly imagine. We can't hang it on our walls, but it lives in our hearts and it's experienced in our lives until we see Jesus face to face. The prophet Jeremiah summarizes it this way. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Nothing that's impressive by worldly standards because it's hidden. We have the artifact of a new heart created by God that give us life and relationship with him, but no one can see it. And we can't claim it for ourselves. And so it's unimpressive. Let's keep going. Verse 9, For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So you got another comparison. The ministry of condemnation versus the ministry of righteousness. As impressive as the ministry of Moses was, it only served to bring condemnation. So if you want to live on Mount Sinai with all of its impressiveness, the only thing it brings about is condemnation. That's it. Paul writes in Galatians 3, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For as it is written, Curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, those, the one who does them shall live by them. So if you want to live the impressive life, chasing after your own standards, then go ahead. But Paul writes, that is a merry-go-round of condemnation. You will only continually fall short. If you want to live by the law, you'll be condemned by the law. Often, on my weaker days, I fall into this desire where I want to impress everyone. I want to be known by my performance. And so I clean a little more around the house. I put my best foot forward at work. I don't reveal the scars and wounds and thoughts I'm thinking And often in my experience, what happens? The validation that I'm seeking underdelivers. No one can validate me or justify me or make me feel as good to the level of intensity that I actually need. 
Even though I want to live an impressive life, no one can reach me at that depth. Which is a dangerous game to play. Because it leads only to more and more condemnation. The Bible says you want to rely on works of the flesh. It will kill you. Our own impressiveness to justify ourselves cannot be based on the works of the flesh. We will only be condemned and never good enough. But the ministry of the Spirit, Paul writes, is one of righteousness. The unimpressive life is one where we are not seeking to validate or justify ourselves to others or God or even ourselves. The ministry of righteousness is unimpressive because all of our hope for righteousness is 100% dependent on and accomplished in Jesus Christ. So if we've arrived at the impressive status of an authentic relationship with Jesus, what can we actually say? What did we do to get there? Nothing. It was all Jesus. How did we navigate the way? We didn't. He brought us here. Now that we are here, how are we going to stay in his good graces? We, we are hopeless if he doesn't keep us. And so we can say that, are we, can, can we say that we're impressive? No, but he is impressive. And whatever impressiveness we do is only through him and on behalf of the spirit that works in us. It's unimpressive because it's not us. It's always him and never us. Verse 10, last comparison. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The ministry of death and condemnation is also a ministry of temporary glory. For whatever reason, in God's wisdom, the things that uh, the, often the things with temporary glory are far more impressive and appealing to us. That's why we all have issues with delay, delayed gratification, right? Those things are just more appealing. But the things with permanent glory tend to unimpress us, tend to just be like, man. Moses' ministry came with thunderous mountains, ceremony, pomp, circumstance, but the ministry of the Spirit is not that. The ministry of the Spirit, for most of us who've come to Christ, we turn to Jesus in tears after a conversation with mom or dad. Maybe you came to Christ in your dorm room, like I did, just on the floor in one morning. It's nothing. It's, it's miraculous, it's glorious, but there's no pomp, there's no circumstance. They were otherwise normal days. As a people, we practice otherwise normal things. We baptize believers with water and a metal tub. We eat bread and grape juice. It's unimpressive. Can any of you say, you know what, it is the water in the horse tub. That's what did it for me. <laughs> right? That's what really won me over. No. Why don't we say that? Because we know that these ordinary, seemingly unimpressive things are only a temporary sign of the permanent, far more impressive glory that's awaiting us in Christ Jesus. 
We have hope in the promises of God fulfilled in Christ, which are already ours while we wait to see him face to face, which means right now it lacks celebration. There's something better we're waiting to celebrate. There's a better Mount Sinai. There's a better glory. It's an unimpressive life, and it's only through an unimpressive life that we enjoy an authentic relationship with God. Second point. Look at verse 12. Since we have such a hope, hope in the righteousness of Christ, we are very bold and not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. When I was in college, my friend Brent asked me a question that completely changed my relationship with God. He asked me, do you know the one thing or one of the things that God will never do for you? I was like, what? God refuses to deal with you any other way than who you truly are. God refuses to deal with you in any other way than who you truly are. Anything less than authentic doesn't cut it. Anything less than 100% you doesn't cut it. Particularly, he was talking to me, why do you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceilings? It's because you're pretending. You're showing up to God thinking you have to put on a show for him, and anything less than who you truly are won't cut it. God won't hear that prayer because it's not yours. It's somebody else's. All our efforts of impressiveness must be laid aside, which is what Paul's getting at. So 13 or 12, since we have this hope, Paul says, we are very bold and not like Moses. It's like no sense beating around the burning bush. You know, we're not, Moses wasn't very bold. Really? Moses? Moses wasn't very bold, but in what sense? So, so, Look, we'll put it on the screen. We'll look at Exodus 34, 29 through 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. And Moses did not know that the skin of his face had shone because he was talking with God. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put a veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. In Paul's interpretation, Moses putting a veil over his face is not very bold. It's inauthentic. Isn't that crazy? Like, I just found that incredibly fascinating this week. Here's what he's saying. Moses hid his shining face from the people because he wanted to shield them from the temporary glory of the impressive ministry that was fading away. Moses put a veil over his face because he did not want the people of Israel trusting in the mountain, trusting in the glory, trusting in the impressiveness. He wanted them trusting in the Lord. And so he hid, the, he hid his face because that glory was fading away. The outcome of that ministry was going away. And so he hid behind a veil. And Paul is saying, guys, we don't hide behind a veil because the ministry we proclaim is not very impressive. But it's authentic. 
He didn't want them led into their desire for an impressive outcome because he knew that was only temporary. And so he veiled it. But, Paul says, that veiling ministry didn't work. It didn't actually lead to an authentic relationship with the Lord. How do we know it? Verse 14. But their minds were hardened. Instead of seeing God's glory and and believing and trusting in the Lord, they wanted a veiled ministry also. They wanted veiled hearts. For to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is the veil taken away. The veil that Moses wore to shield the Israelites from trusting in temporary glory only served to put a veil over their minds. They thought living with pomp and circumstance of a shining face was the ultimate goal for their lives. Again, the consequence of living an impressive life through inauthentic means is ultimately death, closed off from the life that God wants for you in Jesus. So maybe you're here this morning and you've been following Jesus for a long time, but the temptation of having it all together has kind of crept in. Maybe the temptation of hiding behind a certain appearance, or pretending like you've reached a certain status. Maybe trusting in your own do-goodness and trusting in your Bible reading and prayer and how many people you shared with this week. Maybe you're hiding behind the Christian game. Or maybe you don't know Jesus. You're not a Christian, but you've been trying to put a good life together, a, a, a compelling resume that might make you acceptable to a community like this one. But whatever it is, or whatever it is you think you want when you put on a show, when you play the impressive game, whatever it is you think you want when you hide behind a mask, is only found in Christ. You can't manifest it. You can't stir it up. You can't call it out. It's only found in Christ. Only through Christ is the veil taken away. Only through Christ can you authentically be yourself. Verse 15, Paul repeats, Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So think back to our example of Moses in Exodus 34. When Moses went into the presence of the Lord, what did he do? What did Moses do when he entered God's presence? Remove the veil. He took it off. Unveiled. Authentic relationship with the Lord. But when he came out, he put it back on. Paul says whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. They sit in his presence. They're free to be who they are. They enjoy the same fellowship that Moses enjoyed. But unlike Moses, when someone turns to the Lord, when someone's in Christ, they don't put the veil back on. They, leave, they never leave God's presence. They walk continually in his presence, unveiled, and proclaim authentically to the world with unveiled face the presence of the Lord. We don't come down from the mountain. We don't leave God's presence. How do we know this? Paul writes, because the ministry of the mountain of death and pomp and circumstance has faded away along with Moses' shining face and has been replaced with a far more impressive, glorious 
ministry. The spirit and life of righteousness in Christ. Verse 17, Paul says, For now the Lord is spirit, not mountain, not thunder, not lightning, not not ten commandments. The Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Moses was held in bondage by the temporary glory of the law. But we experience God not through a temporary impressiveness of our own works, but through the free-flowing grace offered to us in the Spirit of God. We enjoy an authentic relationship with God through His Spirit. For the Lord is Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is. There's freedom. But what are the implications of the freedom? Verse 18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. An authentic relationship with God, beholding His glory with unveiled face, is what we have in the Spirit. It's unimpressive, but it's authentic. Paul says, when we behold God with the unveiled face, enjoying life in the Spirit, we're becoming like Jesus. Not becoming him, but like him, sharing in his righteousness. And Paul says that we are doing this from one degree of glory to another. Has anyone heard one degree of glory to another? Like, what does that mean? Okay, yeah, me too. Okay, what does this mean? Brings us back to our main point. In Christ, we are free to embrace the unimpressive life and enjoy an authentic relationship with God. Church, Hear the gospel this morning. Jesus lived the impressive life on our behalf as the only one who was able to authentically keep God's law. He didn't put on a show for it. He authentically kept God's law. And that was impressive, is impressive. We could not do this. Only he could do this. Not only that, but Jesus lived the unimpressive life on our behalf. He set aside his glory and took on the form of a servant. He was humble and lowly. He entered humanity as a refugee infant. He was adopted, uh, an adopted son of a carpenter. His disciples lacked credentials. His ministry was defined by conflict and seemingly fruitless. He was betrayed by a friend and executed publicly at the hands of the state. He died among criminals, abandoned by his friends. He was too poor to afford his own grave. He was unimpressive. Church, the most supremely impressive being lived an unimpressive life and died an unimpressive death on your behalf, on my behalf, so that we would no longer have to hide behind fig leaves and veils of our own impressiveness so that we could enjoy an authentic relationship with God. Only in Christ is the veil removed. When someone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And because of both what Jesus has done on our behalf and who he is on our behalf, We can have an authentic relationship with God. We're free to embrace the unimpressive life and enjoy an authentic relationship. Right now, we live the unimpressive life, but it's authentic. 
one degree of glory. Soon, we will still be unimpressive, but glorious beings, singing authentically the praises of Jesus for eternity to another more infinite degree of glory. And all of this, Paul says, lest we forget, is from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's not from ourselves. Which brings us to another unimpressive sign of the reality of who God is to us, right? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his friends and said, eat this bread in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and said, this cup marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. And every time you drink from this cup and you eat this bread, you proclaim my death until I return. Church, today we're announcing that in Christ, we are free to embrace the unimpressive life and enjoy an authentic relationship with God. Our tradition here at Antioch is to come forward together and break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. There will be gluten-free over here. If you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to examine yourself and come forward in just a moment. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this symbol is not for you. But instead, we would implore you to lay aside your own impressiveness and take up Jesus. We encourage you to take up Christ. There will be pastors in the back to talk and pray with you afterwards. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you as a people who are banking everything we have on you. Recognizing that we've got nothing that we bring to this table, but that you have provided everything for us at this table in your body and your blood broken and spilled for us. Jesus, we pray that you would convict our hearts where we'd stop trusting in ourselves. And we would trust in you. Jesus, we're thankful that in you we can come to you as we are. That you love us and receive us. That you want to have an authentic relationship with us. We can't even fathom what that means most of the time. But we're simply thankful. Jesus, we ask you to be with us. As we come to this table, make yourself known in the breaking of your bread. We pray in your name. Amen.